2: From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. Hello, Sam Evans-Brown.
0: Hey, Angela. How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you doing? (laughs) I called up my radio pal, Sam Evans-Brown, just as 2020 was coming to a close. December 2020 (laughs) is how you're doing. It's my
0: 2020 response, exactly.
2: (laughs) But we're not looking backward today, and we're not going to dwell on the tumultuous start to 2021 either. We're looking to the future. And when I say we, I mean Sam and his colleagues at New Hampshire Public Radio, where they make the excellent show Outside In.
0: Yeah, so the tagline of Outside In is that it's a show about the natural world and how we use it. Um, Some folks in our audience take issue with the how we use it part of the tagline, and uh, I argue that that is explicitly why we (laughs) include that piece of it, which is that we're really specifically looking into the choices that humans have to make because of you know, the way in which our presence is now shaping every corner of our natural environment.
2: Outside In also sometimes answers listener questions like we do here on BLS, including one recently. It's a really good episode and it touches on themes that you too have asked us about. It even features some Vermont voices. And so we're not trying to sort of hide it. I mean, we should say what this episode is about. Um, This is an episode about climate migration.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's specifically about if you're thinking about moving because you're concerned about the climate in your home, where should you go?
2: So today we pass the mic to Outside In to answer a listener question with some local implications. I know you're going to enjoy it. Welcome.
3: Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com.
0: This is Outside In. I'm Sam evans Brown. Meet Bess Samuel. One of her first jobs was a counselor at Space Camp in Huntsville, Alabama.
4: Yeah, it, it was fun. It was—it's pretty cool to put a simulated astronaut training on your resume.
0: As Bess told our own Justine Paradise, that is in fact where she met her husband.
4: So we're—we're we're true nerds. We met at Space Camp. We got engaged <laughs> at a Doctor Who
0: convention.
3: Yes. Um.
0: And now they have two kids. The older just started preschool this year. But these days, they're thinking about moving out of Alabama. She told us that it's hard because there's a lot of things about the South she really loves. But especially now that her son is in school, she's worried about the political and cultural climate in the state. It's more conservative and more religious than she'd like. But there's another reason, too. And this is the reason Bess initially reached out to us. She actually dialed into the Ask Sam hotline and left us a voicemail. Hi,
4: this is Beth in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, my family and I are looking to move. For a number of reasons, um, but one of them is because of climate change. Where is the safest place to move, um, based on the data that we have right now?
0: This is way more personal of a question than we're used to getting for Ask Sam, which is why. Justine called Best back to follow up.
4: I feel like I have to be realistic about this is this is as good as it's gonna get for a while. Like we we keep hearing these things about it's the hottest summer and it's the hottest summer and it's the hottest summer and that trend doesn't seem to be reversing. So I look at the summers we have now and I look at the two hundred dollar power bills and. You know, frying eggs on sidewalks. At this point, we're just trying to do better. But part of the problem is you don't know what things are going to look like in 10 years because everything is changing so rapidly.
0: There's a term for what Bess is thinking about doing. Climate migration relocating entirely or partly because of climate and climate change. And in the coming decades, the scale of climate migration could be somewhat dizzying. One analysis from ProPublica looked at what could happen in the worst-case scenario. In 50 years, 4 million people in the United States could find themselves living at the fringe, decidedly outside the ideal conditions for human life. 4 million. Imagine if even half of that number needed to move. And even now, Bess is not the only one asking
5: this question.
1: The idea that, you know, you have to live in one place forever, I think people have to forget that.
5: Oh, there's like a haze in the sky, isn't there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, dude, Like, I need to go inside. Where do we want to go? Because it's not enough to be, say, OK, I don't want to be here. Where are you going?
0: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, in collaboration with By Degrees, NHPR's climate reporting initiative, we're devoting the entire episode to answering one question. If you're worried about climate, where should you live? We don't know what the next year is
6: going to bring. Are people moving already? They see what's happening, right? Like, I'm being displaced. And how
0: should places prepare for the wave of climate migrants just around the corner?
5: So it worries me that, like, the predictable stuff is, the tip of the iceberg.
0: So to answer this question, we have Justine Paradise, our producer on Outside In. Yep, hello. And energy environment reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio, Annie Ropeek. Hey. Hello. So can we answer Bess's question? Where is the safest place to live in the United
3: States? I think the real thing is, can you answer this question? Oh,
0: <laughs> Well, to, to a certain extent, I feel like there's a straightforward answer to this. So in 2017, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, put out something called the Climate Resilience Screening Index. And it basically aggregated all sorts of climate risks and societal measures into just a single point-based score. And according to that, the most resilient county in the United States is the Kodiak Island Borough of Alaska,
7: Oh, okay. There's the answer. Good luck, Bez. (laughs) Have fun.
0: Have a great life.
3: (laughs) End of episode.
7: I mean, one question is like whether most resilient is even the same thing as safest, right? But either way, this kind of goes to show how unsatisfying it can be to just go by the data to try to answer a question like this.
0: Right. And and just to sort of underscore this, ProPublica did another one of these aggregation risk analyses and showed that some of the safest areas in 20 to 40 years, theoretically, will be parts of like the Midwest and parts of the Northwest and parts of northern New England, like Maine and Vermont.
3: So from Alabama to, like, the wintry mix of New England winters, right. welcome, Bess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And not everyone who's facing sea level rise or wildfires is going to want to move to places like those. So when we got the idea to do an episode responding to Bess's question, we decided let's just put out a survey asking people how they're dealing with this question of where they should live based on climate change. And and Justine, you you actually reached out to some of the people who responded to that survey.
3: Yeah, I reached out to probably like 10, 12 people all over the country. And, um, you know, just like you were pointing to, Sam, everyone's individual situation was so different. Um, Like there was Susie Patterson, who was living in Kailua-Kona, Hawaii. Anywhere you are,
8: climate change is happening. It's getting worse. Why not pick where you want to live (laughs) the most? And for us, it was Hawaii. It was a dream.
3: There was Alex, who was dealing with wildfire smoke in LA.
0: It's a constant balancing act between uh, what things to do to the air in any given room to accomplish a habitable environment.
3: And there was Mike Hass, an organic vegetable farmer in Kentucky.
5: It gets super hot in June, July. I don't really grow potatoes anymore um, those times a year because it's just too hot.
3: But there was one story that I think in particular really illustrated just how idiosyncratic this whole decision is of figuring out where you're going to live in light of climate. And it came from someone named Jesse.
5: Uh, I'm Jesse Hyman. Um, I live in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm currently a student and I work at a warehouse for the moment until I finish college.
3: And Sam, you actually jumped on this call, too. Jesse is in school for biology right now. Yes. And
5: he's
0: thrilled about biology. And when we were on the Zoom call, you could see the posters on the wall behind him. Uh, And there there was like one that was just a bunch of fossils and the other was like a giant map of Big Bend National Park.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And Jesse really loves the desert, loves the American West. But one of the things he is considering as he thinks about uh, where he's going to live in the future is his health.
5: Right. Because he's got asthma. You know, at my age, people don't really people don't look at people who are like, you know, over like 18 or 20, you know, like in their higher, like they don't really think of asthma as like an adult, you know, issue. You know, you even see it in like shows. It's like the people with asthma are like these like nerdy kids, you know, (laughs) like they're always like wheezing. You know they got that right, but whatever. Like, it stuck with me.
0: (laughs) I love that he's like. I love he's like. It's a true stereotype, but I resent it anyway.
7: (laughs) Self fulfilling.
5: Yeah, I've my asthma condition is like mild to severe. So, I had an internship in Utah, and so I lived there for the summer, and it was in Glen Canyon. And the whole time I was there for those two and a half months. I only used my inhaler once, and it was during a wildfire.
0: And he said, I think Jesse said that the only other time he used his inhaler that summer was when he visited L.A. to see his dad's family, and that, and that usually he's using it all the time.
5: Like, I don't know if you've ever had, like, um, like you were, like, buried in the sand, and you like there's, like, a lot of sand, like, on your chest, so it's, like, harder to breathe. It feels like that, so that's what it feels like in the city or, like, in an area with, like, bad air quality. Um, And other people might not even notice it. Uh, They just might notice like there's like, oh, there's like a haze in the sky, isn't there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, dude, like I need to go inside. Like, (laughs) I can't I can't do this.
0: And that means that living near wildfires is a much bigger deal for him. And as things get hotter, air quality, both in terms of city smog and wildfire smoke, will probably just get worse.
3: Right. And the other thing that happened in our conversation was that, um, you know, Jesse had told us, hey, I'm living with my grandfather and my mom. They both you know, grew up and lived in a village in the high desert in Mexico.
1: Hola. Hola,
3: buenos días. And he brought his mom in to talk with us too. mi nombre completo es
6: Jaime Ramírez.
0: And we partly want to talk to her because they argue about how much can you really do about climate change. And I remember in this conversation asking her. Like, hey, it seems that climate change is a really big deal for Jesse, and he thinks that we should be doing things personally to fight it, and that it's really impacting how he thinks about his future. And, and is that the case for you? And she had this very diplomatic response.
6: Yo pienso que sí, que es lo que él piensa, sí.
0: Where she just said, yes, I think that's what he thinks. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, but not you. And her answer was, was I think, like a sentiment that is in a certain sense true, which is she said, like, my impact is so small. What can I do? And in the meantime, the people that are causing the problem are just polluting even more.
7: I mean, I think this just points to like how this is such a stressful emotional decision and we're dealing with this massive collective action problem. We're all trying to figure out what it means for our own individual lives. But, you know, I think that process can bring up this kind of sense of like a loss of agency, of being out of control. And since we'll all be experiencing it no matter what or no matter where we are, maybe does it even make sense to move?
0: Well, actually, my takeaway from talking to Jesse and his mom, too, was um, the reasons people move are complicated and and like interwoven together and so jesse is like a young dude he's he's like just getting started in life and and he's thinking about this a lot like where do i want to make my life versus his mom you know she's like reached a certain point and it was just clear she was not considering moving like like she's noticing things are changing but these are not considerations that are a big enough deal for her to uproot everything
7: So that brings us to one of the reasons why looking up this data isn't exactly satisfying. Because first of all, moving is like such a combination of so many factors. Lots of them are emotional factors. And also everyone's decision affects everyone else's decision. It's this butterfly effect. Like how complicated would it be if thousands or even millions of people moved to Kodiak or like Coas County, New Hampshire? 2010 population, (laughs) 33,000.
0: I do do find it kind of hard to imagine millions of people moving to Costa County, New Hampshire. But even like tens of thousands of people would be
7: a huge deal. And that's the wild thing is you can't really know what to expect. That's the problem here. And then any one change in the system affects all the other changes. One disaster in one place will drive people to another place, which could drive people there to another place. And so it's this ripple effect.
0: places that scores pretty high in terms of climate resiliency is our, our neighbor, Vermont. And so, Annie, we sent you to find out if they were thinking much about climate migration. Like, is Vermont prepared for a big influx of people moving to that state?
7: The very short answer is that there's no good answer to it. It's like chicken and egg. And, you know, this is where we get to the inevitable COVID-19 tie-in, Right. So you might have seen this kind of theme in maybe certain New York Times articles during the pandemic, like small rural town not too far from a major metro area struggles with an influx of wealthy second homeowners fleeing from COVID. We even did one of these stories here at NHPR. I went up to New Hampshire's Lakes region early in the lockdown in April, and literally the first people I met on the street in the town of Wolfboro were a male swimwear model and a Ralph Lauren executive from New York City, who were hunkering down in their second home with their two cocker spaniels. We're just grateful to be here. I think that um, not everybody is fortunate to be able
4: to get out of the cesspool of New York right now, so. um,
7: That will never happen to me again in my career that I just like stumble (laughs) on, just caricaturishly perfect, yeah. It was just astonishing. I
3: love that story. I'm sure they were lovely. (laughs) They
7: They were great. And they had had people yelling at them because they had New York plates on their car.
0: Got a few looks.
4: Who let you out of the state? You know, things like that. It's been a
7: mix. So that is genuinely a microcosm of what could happen due to climate change, depending on how towns sort of plan on how to accept new residents. So take Vermont as an example. There are lots of people that have moved there semi-permanently due to the pandemic. It could be up to as many as 11,000 people, according to one research firm. And just for context, Vermont's population is 624,000 people. So that would be around a percent and a half increase if that turns out to be true.
4: 14 months ago, we wouldn't have anticipated a population bump due to a pandemic So who's to how can we sit here now and say that we won't see climate migration in a year or five years or 10
7: years? This is Kate McCarthy. She's the Sustainable Communities Program Manager at the Vermont Natural Resources Council. And she was one of the first people in Vermont who really started thinking about climate migration in this context in just the past few years.
4: And we were met with some skepticism for sure. Um, Like, oh, that's not going to happen. There's no there are no jobs here. People don't have any motivation to come here. And now, I think with COVID, people have seen two things. One, you don't need to be coming to a job. You can be bringing a job with you. And two, we don't know what the next year is going to bring.
7: Kate has been trying to kind of normalize this conversation around climate migration. And it's really complicated, especially because... You know, what people like her are expecting is that the first wave of people who come are going to be upper middle class folks, people who kind of are able to move regardless of how Vermont prepares to accept them. And Kate has worked on this a lot with an attorney named Elena Mahali. She works with the Conservation Law Foundation, which is a nonprofit up here, and she lives in Vermont.
8: I don't think Vermont has really faced the kind of development pressure that it may once other parts of our country become
7: uninhabitable. And Elena says, like, without some good planning, she's worried that rampant development will only serve to heighten inequality, to undermine Vermont's other goals, including around climate change. So by fragmenting forest lands, for example, or increasing transportation emissions, which are our biggest contributor to climate change up here. And Elena says they also don't want to see new, you know, new housing built in river floodplains or additional stress on drinking water aquifers that are already sensitive to drought. Because, you know, this is the thing. We're not immune to climate change in New England. These things are going to happen. They're already happening. Just because we're safer than, like, California in wildfire season does not mean there won't be climate-related problems and challenges for current and new residents to deal with. Including wildfires. Including wildfires, exactly. We've seen forest fires in a drought this year. Uh, I've had a New Hampshire official tell me verbatim, it could happen here.
0: <laughs> and it also just makes me think that like some of these things are oversimplifications. Mm-hmm. Like like people will look at New England and they say, oh, that's a place that has abundant uh, you know, drinking water. Bingo. But it's like, look at this year. We're still having a pretty crazy drought. People's wells have gone dry. Folks have had to drill new wells, which could be putting pressure on aquifers. And I think... I just think some of the top line numbers oversimplify what it'll be like to live through climate change here in New England.
7: Right. Yes. So short term extremes are not the same thing as long term abundance. But, you know, Alina says the good news is that making those plans means doing a lot of stuff she says towns should be doing anyway, right? So practically, it means creating a greater variety of housing types, more affordable housing, creating more support for rural infrastructure like water and sewer, expanded health care, education. And then Alina says it also means better zoning.
8: It's as much about the town saying, here's the development we want, as it is about the town saying, here's the development we don't want. So that... There is something for them to fall back on besides instinct and bias and uh, cultural norm when, when faced with a, a development or population influx.
7: So this is probably the toughest nut to crack. This is the culture clash issue. And Can I, can I jump in really
0: quickly with an anecdote? Yes, I visited a friend over the summer who lives in Vermont, and and it was uh, a birthday, and don't at me, it was outside, people wore masks whenever <laughs> they got, came camped to the food table, everyone was just sitting around a fire, you know. Anyway, but uh, I met a friend of hers who was, grew up in Vermont, and they were all talking about how all these people were coming to Vermont, and there was just something she said that I just found totally chilling, where she goes, yeah, you know, all these people coming in, and I just hope they're the right people. And (laughs) I was like, you know, the New Hampshire person, just like my my like my hackles went up a little bit. And and then like she went on and like it turns out she was obviously just talking about Trump voters, which, you know, is a little bit of an eye roll in its own way. But I mean, that's
7: like there's no good. I mean, I don't know if you have to ask. I think there's just no good outcome to asking that question. At best, she means New Hampshire people. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, So, yeah, this is real.
7: Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, that's the real life version of these New York Times stories about, you know, traffic jams at the rural transfer station because of all the New Yorkers fleeing COVID who don't know how to drop off their recycling. Or, you know, we've also seen stories about, like, racial slurs being yelled at people of color with out-of-state plates on their cars, you know, who are driving around in towns where they have a second home. And it's important to remember that Vermont is shrinking and aging and overwhelmingly white.
8: Like, I, I can't emphasize enough, I think, how much energy is, should be devoted towards the social uh issues that come with welcoming new people to Vermont and the the deep-seated nativism and sort of uh you're not a Vermonter unless you were born and raised here three generations ago notions um it's really time for us to see the, the opportunities that come from um welcoming people into the state.
3: So I I think it's been interesting for us to think about this from the perspective of New England states, because that's where we are. But I want to pull back a little more to see how this shapes how we'll live together kind of at a bigger
1: scale um, and how our entire communities and cities already changing. Where is the safest place? I I don't think there is that place that is completely safe. It depends on which hazard uh, you can deal with. There's always a trade off, right?
0: outside in we'll be right back after a break. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, here today with Justine Paradise and Annie Ropeek. And today we have been talking about climate migration in the United States. Basically, there are going to be millions of people who are increasingly at risk from climate-related problems, flooding, extreme heat, crop failure. And that means that potentially millions of people might be picking up and moving somewhere safer over the next few decades. But where and what place isn't so affected by climate change?
3: So, so far, we've been talking about New England and a few individual stories of people who are trying to make decisions in their own lives. But then I talked to this researcher who's really focused on change at a societal level.
1: Uh, My name is Jola Ajibade. Um, I am an assistant professor at Portland State University. So Jola focuses a lot on cities. And a big question she
3: asks is, can different kinds of movement driven by climate change happen in ways that are just and fair? Jola herself is originally from Lagos, Nigeria, and grew up in a part of the city that flooded a lot. And this was even before climate change was such a serious factor.
1: So I grew up in um, a community called Ijeshatedo in Lagos. But it was built in the old Ijeshatedo at the time was a swampland. And because they lived on the ground floor. We got flooded every time it rained.
3: <laughs> And that experience really follows her to this day, um, even just as far as living
1: on the first floor. Even if it didn't get flooded, it was just the fear. I hated living on the ground floor. Even to date, I don't like it.
3: <laughs> so in the course of her work, Jola had been noticing that people and policymakers were conflating what she says are very different types of movement climate migration
1: versus managed retreat. And I was just infuriated. I was saying, no, the people who are retreating are not the same people who are migrating. Of course you can retreat and migrate, but these are different things and it's not helping move us forward. The way she defines it, climate migration is what we've been talking about so
3: far. Even if it's at a massive scale, like even if people feel like they have no choice but to
1: leave, climate migration really tends to focus on individual people and families. And then with managed retreats, people are thinking we can move lighthouses We can move the capital of a city. We can move our businesses. We can move all of these things. And so it's very different in terms of the ways in which it plays out on ground. Managed retreat is about planning. It
3: can be more collective. It can be more or less government or institutionally supported. Um, It can be more or less strategic. So like moving buildings or buying people out in New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy or moving entire communities together. So you can think of those recent case studies uh, you might have heard about, like coastal native communities in Shishmaref, Alaska, or Ile de Jean-Charles in southern Louisiana. So lots of examples, but Jola says they are not all created equal.
1: What does it mean for retreat to be successful? It's, I haven't seen a situation where all of the aspects of human life to date can be said to be a win-win. A win-win can be really hard to
3: achieve, and some managed retreats can be super top-down and not participatory. So, like, there are buyouts in the case of Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey, but in Lagos, Jola says
1: there are examples that didn't provide any compensation for moving. So I call that a kick-out instead of a buyout. (laughs)
3: Yeah, and there was this other example in Manila that she studied of the restoration of this river that had been declared biologically dead, Um, and that did give people funding and built
1: housing and got buy-in. And so some of the slum dwellers themselves became environmental justice advocates, or should I say they became environmental... um, practitioners and people who say we need to protect the river because they were engaged, actively engaged from the beginning. So the thing is, this took 20 years. So time was a factor in that one.
3: And there's another example in Manila that Jola also told me about. This is the example of New Clark City, which is a totally new city right now being constructed
1: outside of Manila. They are putting in place rail lines, um, housing, sports centers. So they are building the city from the scratch. And the goal is that it will be completed in 20 years. The idea behind New Clark City is that when disasters hit Manila, the people that need to respond are also affected and therefore can't help. They all leave there, so they all get impacted. So the idea is if you move them to Clark City, if there is a major issue, they can fly in with a helicopter or whatever else, then they can help people in Manila to deal with it. That's part of the logic for this New Clark City. Um, But I don't know if, you know, the uh, people in former settlers families, low income classes will also be part of the people that will be relocated to New Clark City. So
3: like she said, Jola wasn't sure how this will play out and if it's going to be equitable or not.
7: I guess I'd just say that, you know, there's no guarantee that it will or won't be equitable. But according to people I've talked to, that if you only try to make it fair while the change is already underway, it's kind of too late. Like, if you don't plan for change to be equitable, you can almost guarantee that it won't be.
3: So actually, there's another iconic example of how uh, movement due to climate change is happening within one city in the United States. And this is an example that demonstrates how equity and history and climate change are all interacting and how climate change puts more pressure on top of what's already taking place. And this city is Miami.
6: Yes, I was born and raised in Miami, 305 till I die, like born and raised (laughs) in the county of Dade. So like this is this is home for me.
3: This is Nadej Green. She works for the Community Justice Project in Miami. And she reported on climate gentrification for the local public radio station, WLRN. So in Miami, there is this limestone ridge that runs north-south through the city. And this is where the railroad tracks were built, on top of the ridge. So east of the railroad is the ocean and lower elevation, the waterfront. So it's historically quite desirable.
6: And the neighborhoods immediately west of that ridge tend to be historically black neighborhoods. So, for example, Little Haiti and Liberty City are west of the ridge and they sit on higher elevation.
3: So higher elevation with projected sea level rise. Um, Elevation is obviously one of the factors that will accelerate investment and development and rising property prices in places like Liberty City and Little Haiti. Um, And Nadege was careful to say this is not the only thing. Like, people are still actively buying waterfront property in Miami. Insanely, yeah. (laughs) I know. But, um, but Liberty City in particular was, um, really like founded by a black community that was displaced earlier in the 20th century by urban renewal and specifically the construction of Mm I-95, the highway. Um, you know, and this happened up and down the East Coast and across the country, Mm -hmm. um, highway planning, directing highways specifically through black communities. Um, So before, uh, earlier, displacement came disguised under phrases like urban renewal. And now words that you hear a lot. You'll
6: hear terms like smart planning.
3: And the question is, is this just the the same thing under a different name? Like, is this a familiar pattern? They see what's happening, right? Like, I'm being
6: displaced. Like, I I have to move. Um, My rent is going up.
3: Some would call this not just gentrification, but climate gentrification. So Nadej herself was born in Little Haiti, and she's of Haitian descent. She grew up in and around the neighborhood, and she's seen old residents move out. And one thing we talked about was cultural loss.
6: When we talk about displacement, it can feel very like, okay, people were moved to somewhere else and the end. But we don't really, like, delve into, like, how displacement impacts folks right like the emotional impact the psychological impact of leaving your community or not being able to call home the community you've always called home
3: and um the shift of the neighborhood is especially acute for you know older folks uh, nadezh pointed out people on fixed income maybe social security in a city with just like really high rents and a lot of it
6: like what does it mean to have a neighbor that knows that madame pierre lives upstairs and, you know, when she doesn't feel well, like I can make the tea that, you know, the Haitian tea from this bush that, you know, we drink when we have a stomach ache, right? Like who will check on Madame Pierre when the neighborhood shifts?
1: Impermanence might be the new normal for many of us. And so, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, you have to live in one place forever, I think people have to forget that. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> Uh, in, in, that's the truth. I mean, I, I, and I think people who have been able to do that historically, I think it's a privilege that they should celebrate. I mean, in my case, even as a Nigerian who moved abroad, there are a lot of issues in my country that led me to decide to, to move abroad, but I would have preferred to stay back if things were fine. And so I sort of have in my head that every, that nothing is permanent. I guess that's how I live my life. One thing that she said, like,
3: Portland is going to experience this earthquake at some point, this 9, 9.0 earthquake. And she's like, one. I,
1: she's like, I know it's going to happen. It's always in my head. But at the same time, I'm not afraid because I've had to leave my family. I've had to go to many countries. I'm living in a foreign country. This is not new to me. Years ago, I read this this piece about,
3: um, it was about exile and identity and uh, it was written by different people who were, And, you know, there are so many different terms of expat or immigrant or migrant or refugee, like, and so political, but um, it's by Charles Simic, and he said, um, you know, he had been displaced, and he said, he would walk in the streets, and the streets were full of these somebodies putting on confident airs. Half the time I envied them, half the time I looked on them with pity. I knew something they didn't, something hard to come by unless history gives you a good kick in the ass. How superfluous and insignificant any grand scheme mere individuals are and how pitiless are those who have no understanding that this could be their fate too
1: i've never read that before (laughs) but that's exactly how i feel and that's Mm. exactly what i think many people are going to come to understand and perhaps experience it does something to you you see people as people you know you get some opportunities because you move you lose some things but you know but it, it gives you that sense of resilience individual resilience if you want But for other people, this is going to affect them psychologically because they've never had to do this. And climate change is going to make a lot of people become exposed to the psychological and all other types of impact that comes with impermanence. Hey. Hello.
4: Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Where is the volume?
0: So, at long last, Justine gave Bess a call back. Are you ready for an answer?
4: Yes, where where should I go run and hide from the storms, winds,
3: tornadoes, other sorted bad nature things?
0: First with the straight up EPA
3: answer. So what do you think about moving to Kodiak Island, Alaska?
4: Uh I don't think my partner would be into it, but, but I might <laughs> I don't know. Did they, how's the internet access in Kodiak Island, Alaska?
3: There's uh the next on the list is Juno, and then Ketchikan, Alaska, and then Sitka, Alaska. Okay. are you getting the picture? okay? <laughs> um, I
4: don't I don't know if I could sell Alaska though. That's a long. I don't know. That would be interesting.
3: Do you have top contenders for um, options? Colorado is high on the list. Um, I did look into New Hampshire because you
4: guys made it sound pretty good. Um, I don't know how I would feel about the primary season,
3: though that would probably be <laughs> not my favorite Our first in the nation, yeah. yeah.
4: um, and also the diversity is kind of an issue up there. I, I like the scenery a lot, but uh, being an interracial family,
3: um that just it just gives me pause. Our real answer is really like not an answer. like this whole <laughs> you know, like, th- like the data yeah. only gets you so far and like like this will sound obvious, but like this, the people we talked to basically said like it depends on your priorities and what trade offs you're willing to deal with.
4: Yeah, there's no solutions. There's only trade offs.
3: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. I hope you let us know what you decide to end up doing. Yeah, I'll let you
4: guys know. Yeah. And if I mean, you'll definitely hear about it if we do end up in New Hampshire somehow.
3: All right, I'm going to go put this in the episode, so. Oh, okay. will <laughs>
4: see you later. Oh,
6: okay.
4: Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>
0: This episode was produced by Justine Paradise, Annie Ropeek, Taylor Quimby, and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with support from Corey Princell and Todd Bellamy Walker. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of It Could Happen Here. If you want to hear more of Nadege Green's reporting on Miami, we recommend listening to season three of There Goes the Neighborhood, a great listen on how elevation, sea level rise, race, and history are all intersecting in that city. Thank you to Anna Morandi, Chris Campany, Lauren Gaudette, And Garrett Neff. And thanks to everybody who responded to the survey and everyone who spoke to us for this episode Alex Whittemore, Daniel Mitchell, Mark Nystrom, Megan Kelly, Alex Texera, Jesse Jaime, Aurelia Jaime Ramirez, Jenny Stowe, Mike Haas, Susie Patterson, Mike Teal, Alicia Dykus, and of course, Beth Samuel. Music in this episode came from Massimo Ruberti and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
2: And Brave Little State will be back soon to answer more of your questions. I'm Angela Evansy. Until then, be brave.
5: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.